Good morning, happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, already a very busy Monday. Got to dig straight into today's Q&A. Uh, this is with Taya. This is actually a very short video uh, with a lot of information in it in regards to identifying knee orientation. So we talk about this a lot in regards to the uh, femoral position potentially being in ER versus IR, tibial position being ER versus IR. And if we can identify these positions, number one, we might be able to produce a much more effective middle propulsive representation, which is actually protective of a lot of knee injuries. Because if we're trying to produce force with an ER representation of this knee, that is not a force producing position. And so a lot of bad things can result from this. And so this is a, a brief talk about how we use a heel to butt measurement to identify the, the knee positions. We talk about patellar position. So if you've ever seen like the sky line x-ray views where there, there's a representation that looks like a, uh, the, the patella is the sun over the mountains, so to speak. You'll be able to identify the, the uh, relative patella position. And so we can actually do that with the heel to butt measurement as well. So we talk about that. A lot of it comes down to doing a lot of heel to butt measurements. So we can identify whether we have an eccentrically oriented vastus medialis that allows the, the heel to reach the butt in the the ER position, or whether we have a true um, middle propulsive representation of the knee. So thank you, Taya. This is a really important video for a lot of people. If you'd like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Please include your question in your email. Everybody have an outstanding Monday and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Bill. Yes, uh, can I just ask how could you differentiate between the right and wrong uh, heel to butt knee flexion? If they um, <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Um, so when you're when you're actually executing the heel to butt, if you pay attention to the patella, mm -hmm. okay. If the patella gets pulled to the extreme lateral aspect of the knee. Okay, as you're taking the heel to the butt, you'll see the patella move laterally. Now it's gonna go there anyway, okay? It's, but to the degree in which it does so, and then pay attention to the tibial tubercle as well. So if you have a tibial tubercle that is turning into ER as you bend the knee and you get good heel to butt, and most people that have like an eccentrically oriented VMO, as you flex, flex the knee by tradition, okay? It's very, very soft, like crazy soft. Um, and, and so it's very easy to take the heel to the butt under those circumstances. The way that you're gonna understand it, I can explain it to you repeatedly, but the way that you're going to understand it is by executing about a thousand of them, okay? Mm -hmm. So, um, Every opportunity that you have to do a heel to butt measure, do it and then pay attention to what you're doing and then pay attention to what you're observing. Okay. And how do you observe the patella if, he, if the person is lying prone? I wouldn't, I wouldn't do a heel to butt in that position. I would oh, do it in, okay. always do it in supine. Okay. You have too much, you have too much interference um, in regards to heel to butt uh, in prone. I would not. I don't do any, uh, I won't say I, I would never do any measurements in prone. I just don't do any. They're, 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 
more like checks and balances for me versus the decision makers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because in school they learned us the heel to butt prone. That's what. Okay. <laughs> there's too much. There, there's 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 too much potential for interference in regards to the pelvic orientation. Okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. You understand? It's it's like okay, here you go. The people that would get accused of tight quads, right? They never have heel to butt and prone, but they could have heel to butt and supine. You see the difference? So, so mm-hmm. I always do it supine because because what I'm looking at, I'm looking at the capabilities of the of the knee itself. I don't want to I don't want to make a judgment call on on muscle orientation um, as far as the limiting factor. Okay, it ends up creating a an ineffective representation, and people make bad choices as to what needs to be done. Okay, thank you so much. Uh-huh. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. Busy clinic day today. Got to dig straight into today's Q and A. Uh, this is with Andrew um, at the last Coffee and Coaches Conference call last Thursday, um, six a.m. Please join us. Um, we talked a lot about quadruped positions, bear crawls, etc. Like how we can utilize these, how to coach through them. And Andrew brought up some really good points about, okay, th- this is what I'm seeing as a representation of their of their output. It's like their, their technique. Then how do I coach them out of it? And then does this give me a reason to say, okay, this is not the appropriate position. So, so a lot of people make mistakes and try to work through these things when people just don't have the capacity to assume this position. It's a very useful position, um, very uh, useful to capture your internal rotations as it is a middle representation, but uh, not everybody is qualified. And so um, understanding how to coach people through this and, and especially, like I said, when they're incapable um, to recognize that and allow you to move on to a more successful activity. Uh, so thank you, Andrew, for this. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Include your question in the email, if you would, please. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow. If we're, if we're looking at a... A uh, quadruped position, let's say not a, a bear position per se, but just hands and knees. Yep. Um, I am torn between two different ways of doing that. Um, one where it's much more focused on creating um, the the do- dorsal rostral compression, where you're kind of like getting the arms to be somewhat straight, and and that's you know pushing the sternum forwards. And, you know, some people can do that, some people can. And then doing that exercise with a little bit more of like a relaxed disposition where everything's just sinking towards the ground. Like it kind of feels, if I'm doing that subjectively, it feels more like the, the abdomen's expanding, maybe like the, the sternum and the pubis. Um, but I'm guess, I guess I'm asking about the, the difference and sort of merits of doing a quadruped hold with like a hard push where you're, where you're not, not like a, right. It's not like a harder, relatively a push into the ground versus doing it in such a way that you're kind of just sinking into the ground. You're just propped up. Okay. Um, 
let's let's reorient thought process for just a moment from quadruped okay let's just say that so you're on the ground all fours and the ground the direction of the ground is now forward instead of being down we're going to call it forward okay and if i push into the ground and and you feel that the 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 yield in the dorsal rostral thorax are you still going forward no strike one okay <laughs> well yeah it, i guess your your head is moving back um but yeah you're pushing forward hang on hang yeah. on hang on dorsal rostral thorax is concentrically oriented yeah that's a compressive strategy if I push through the ground and I and I I I'm still going forward, gravity doesn't stop. It's still there. You're still going in that direction. Okay, but you're slowing down. It's the yield. You understand? Yeah. Okay. If you give way, if you allow yourself to move in that forward direction. Scapulae are going to are going to approximate, are they not? Right. Okay. So, depending on how you're executing this, you might just get pure scapular retraction, which is actually which is actually an anterior posterior compression, which will elevate the scapula on the thorax. Do you notice that when you when somebody kind of collapses in in quadruped that they kind of look shruggy? Yeah. That's because the scap is going superiorly relative to the axial skeleton okay right. so that's the anterior that's the anterior posterior compressive strategy right okay and so again th th those are the decisions that you make it's like what what is the intention here what are you trying to do okay right so if you want if you want um the availability of, of the pump handle to move if you want yielding dorsal rostral thorax then you you have to avoid the ability to or you have to avoid their their position of moving forward, downward, obviously. Yeah. You, do you see, like, like, it's just understanding what, what type of an activity that you're, you're producing and then what right. is the intention? Right, and I suppose if somebody seems like they are pushing hard no matter what you do, it's just that's not the right activity at this time. Maybe so, because, so, so let's, let's look, at, look at the two possible extremes. Sag as much as they can with arm straight, okay? Scapular elevation, AP right? Or they push really hard and they still elevate the scapula, right? Yeah. It's like you're looking at, you're still looking at AP compression because the scapula is going up on the thorax, which means you have to squeeze it front to back. Right. 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 Yeah. Got it. Okay. Very helpful clarification. Uh-huh. But, but like the minute you put somebody in that position, you, you say, well, I'm going to coach you a little bit and we'll see if we can handle this position. And then if, if you can't get the response that you want, then you take them out of that position and you make it easier. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Thank you. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. 
Well, today is Wednesday, that means tomorrow's Thursday, which means tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. coffee and coaches conference call as usual. Uh, please join us, grab a cup of coffee, great Q&A, great people on these calls, um, solving problems, um, great, great questions. We've been doing this for almost 100 weeks in a row. When I started number one, we probably did a few more than that, but so be it. Um, but again, please join us tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Link will be on my professional Facebook page. Okay, digging into today's Q&A, this is with Alec. This is a really cool call because uh, basically uh, Alec sort of unpacks his brain a little bit in regards to how we move on helical angles. So as I'm fond of saying, you have two strategies to move and one plane to move in, and that's basically what we're talking about when we're talking about moving on helical angles. Your greatest excursion of movement is along your helical angles. So we, we can eliminate the concept of straight planes. It's useful up to a point, but then that, that model uh, definitely has limits to our understanding of how we actually move. If we can understand how we move primarily in rotations and what we see as resultant straight lines or straight planes become cancellations of those rotations, we are much more effective in our selection of our interventions and we get better outcomes. So thank you, Alec. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Please include your question in your email. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference call. As usual, have a great day. So let's take the most extreme narrow representation and the most extreme wide representation. We're gonna put them on tables right next to each other. Yeah. Okay. Without knowing anything about these people. And you're gonna measure traditional shoulder flexion, okay? On both of them. Yeah. What would be your expectation as to who would have the strongest representation of shoulder flexion before you even touch them. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, it's an arrow, so they are more biased towards flexion. And that's well, hang on. Okay. They're not biased towards flexion. Let's, let's be clear about this. Okay. They just move on their helical angle just like the wide guy does. But if I have a more vertical helical angle, it's much easier. I'm moving closer to the helix immediately by constraining them into a position. Ah, could you, could you expand on closer to the helix? Yeah. Um, you got a you got a, 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 a tall slender person you get a short stocky person yeah who's the better bench presser short stocky why just because they they um, yeah, yeah. like the bar yeah. travels less let's put it that way no no no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with that it has nothing to do no? with that. yeah yeah say it say it because you put them in the place they have room to move so they're closer to their helical angle mm -hmm. As they press, yeah, do, Jay, do that again. Do that again. So if their helices is here, a bench press is closer to that helix. So you produce the greatest amount of force and have the greatest excursion of movement on your helical angle. The helix being like the point of junction. The, the, the helices is this. Yes. Okay. You understand that, right? I think that's what we're, we're building. Look at the up. DNA. Look yeah, at the yeah, DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's got a twist in it, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. We're not looking at, at, we're not looking at flat planes and straight lines. Okay. You're not looking at flat planes and straight lines. Yeah. Okay. But if, so let's go back to your Rubik's cube example. Yes. 
That's the that would be the most extreme representation of what we're talking. Absolutely, about. that is a perfectly horizontal helix and a perfectly vertical helix. Okay, which one? So, so if 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 this is the vertical and this is the horizontal, so this is my narrow ISA and this is my wide ISA. Yeah, is is a is a uh, overhead press more in line with this narrow, one? narrow? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and a okay, bench okay. press would be more in line with this one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, so immediately they're closer to their helical angle, so their ranges of motion are better in those ranges, and then their 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 force production is better in those ranges. Okay, so when we're saying closer to their helical angles, we're just just thinking like how much does the activity is aligned with the 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 helices? Okay, okay. Okay. that's why people are that's why certain people are good at certain things just by who they are so that would be why getting a narrow would have an easier time to get into a cut because it, it would it can be it's like a, a depends on it, so hang on when you say something like that it's going to depend on what is the angle of attack to the ground how sharp of a how sharp of a, a turn do i need to make Right? Yeah. You know, like center of gravity matters, all of that. And yeah, all okay. you have to do, like if, if you watch, if you watch the Olympics and things like that, and you see the different body types, it's like, why do you consistently see certain body types in certain events? Yeah, that 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 I get on a first principle basis is just like getting more like let's say when we get to chopping. This yeah. is where I'm like, um, I, I'm, but this is, this is not a question anymore. So like, we'll <laughs> probably move on to the next person after oh, that. No, it's have, like, it's like, this is, this is good. It's like, but it's, it's the point where I'm like, I look at someone and like, like recently I'm, I, it's kind of a rule of thumb thing where I find that for chopping activity with narrows, it works better to have them like use a rope attachment and kind of as a general rule of thumb. No. No, I'm, I'm I'm like I'm I'm pretending to be shocked. I'm being oh okay okay sarcastic you're, in my okay. in my response. <laughs> okay and okay, so I'm on to something. Okay, cool. And yeah, and the no, bar seems like, to like, work better with narrow uh, with wide. Sorry. When wonder why? Yeah, well, it's just that this is where I, yeah. I that's how I ended up on my ruby. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. Thing. You're absolutely right. It's like that's why those attachments. That's why those attachments exist. That's why that's why they evolved. I should say, like exercise evolves. If people go, oh, you're much better at doing this. It's like they just didn't recognize the why. They just they go, oh, that looks better, or that seems to be more effective, or that feels better, right? And then there's certain things that there's certain exercises that you do that just feel awkward as all get out, like yeah, yeah, yeah horrible. Yeah. You go, yeah, I'm not doing that. Uh, like yeah, your, kettlebell, your kettlebell swings horrible, right? Mine is actually pretty decent, but no, it's yeah, not. Sure. I, I, I can see. <laughs> um, but you do like a one arm kettlebell swing, and that probably feels really good, right? Mm. Yeah, because you got a little bit more turn to you. You're on a little bit more vertical helical axis than like if 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 you and Dale, I'm picking on you, Dale. I see you. Hey. I see you, buddy. Uh, no, it's like it's like if you and Dale were both doing kettlebell swings. I'm, I'm watching all. Dale. I'm watching Dale all day, every day. Yeah. You know, he's a kettlebell swinger guy because he's, he's built. He's built better for it. Yeah, because he would be a white. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, he's okay. <laughs> I, I like the ownership. Yeah, yeah, I'm a wide. <laughs> so, okay. Well, I like I just Dale. We're just looking at you. It's like we don't need to measure you. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you probably got the biggest bench on the call, and uh, you know, and a better kettlebell swing. All right, wow. interesting. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, but like, and- like you're, you're already like. This is the stuff that you kind of know that you can't express sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. like your discoveries are like, oh, that now I now I understand. Now I yeah, understand. it's like thank you everybody for my public unpacking of my own mind type. Well, of but thing. that's but that's why we do this because if you don't yeah, express yeah. these things out loud, then you just start to ruminate and then you drive yourself crazy because you confuse yourself. And then as soon as you say something out loud, there is clarity in the expression of your thought. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and you talking, but see you talking yourself through this has just helped somebody else understand this a little bit better wonderful. because they have the, because they have the same thought, they have the same question. Right. Yeah. Cool. And my last greedy thing, I would be wondering what would be the conversion last one. Last one. So um, don't have space in front of me. Okay, fine. I won't do a bear crawl. I'll go for an army crawl. Great. Yep. Um, yep. How do you make that happen with a lunge? Um, well, like a single leg by, activity. By well, by so okay. So what you call a lunge? Okay. Okay. Let, a, or like hang on, deep, hang on, boss, yeah. hang on. It yeah. has a very specific definition, right? Or or I should say has a very specific representation. Okay. Okay. But how many angles? How many angles can you do that on? Many. Okay, so hang on a sec. Um, let's go back to the kettlebell swing example. Yeah. I'm going to give you a kettlebell and you only get to use one hand. Yeah. And you're going to start with a bilateral symmetrical stance. Okay. So it's in your left hand. Okay. And you're doing the kettlebell swing with your left hand, bilateral symmetrical stance. Yeah. And then I go, as you're doing this, I'm, and, I, and I go, I go, Alec, take a baby step forward with your right foot. And then take another baby step forward with your right foot. And then take another baby step forward with your right foot. And then eventually you got to start bringing your feet in, right? Because the step length gets too wide. You can't, you can't keep stepping out, right? You can only go so far sideways and you go like this, you go like this, you go like this, you go like this, you go like this. Yeah. Okay. Eventually you're in line. So you think along the same thing. It's like, okay, um, how many angles can you do a chop? Yeah. Do you realize that a chop is a lunge? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of like, like we, we gave name we we give names to stuff, and then it's like, oh, we have this immediate representation. And instead of looking at, oh, yeah. wait, what's the similarities here? Because if you start to see the similarities, now you write coherent programs. Yeah. Like a wide ISA so, guy. So seen, so seen from above, the helices angle just become a circles. Like, like, and it's just like. Yeah, <laughs> where okay. you been, man? <laughs> huh? I said, like, where you been? It's like, did you see me do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, it, 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 it kind of draws a circle of like how, like, uh -huh. pro there's probably a very symmetrical, symmetrical relationship in between both feet within that. Like they, they, they will tend to have they're the they well actually they will necessarily have a counteracting effect within that so but i did not necessarily it was not intuitive to me like okay at some point you're 
you're too much in front and in the back of you that you're going to start to go into a square. Like you, you will need to narrow it again, but okay. Anyway, I said that was the last thing. So um, that's, that's cool. thank you. <laughs>
Is that <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember the the Boy Scout thingy. Uh, I was never a Boy Scout. So huh? I was never a Boy Scout, so I can't uh, help you there. My brother was an Eagle Scout, so he rubs that in a lot. So it's it's just trying to oppose the thumb. So so, so you you oppose here because you're you're fixing the position of the thumb. Okay. okay. I I move towards ulnar deviation, old school thinking. Okay. Yeah. Ulnar deviation. Okay. That should put uh, abductor pollicis longus. Okay. In a in a so that's the lengthened position, if you will. Okay. Yeah. And then I break the opposition, all right? So I take APL out of the equation now. So that was the limiting factor. So that actually stopped my hand from moving, okay? So it stops my hand. If I break the opposition, I should have more room to go, yeah. right? Yes? No, no, no. Don't do this. Don't spread oh. your fingers apart. You're gonna screw up the test. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. you should have more room to go because because APL is the limitation here. That's what's stopping your hand from movement. Okay. That's when you have the internally rotated hand when the, no. when it's stopping. Okay. Yeah. Hang on. Let me finish. Yes. If I go into the ulnar deviation and I break the opposition and it can't go any farther, then I know that APL is eccentrically oriented. The only way that that could be eccentrically oriented is if my hand is pronated relative to the radius. Yeah. So it's turned farther already. So there's no more excursion for it to go. Yeah. Okay. Because APL is no longer limiting that movement. So it's eccentrically oriented. That means the hand is twisted farther into pronation than the distal radius is. So, okay. so your pistol, your pistol tests here, your apple test tests the hand relative to here. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. A very busy Friday coming up. Um, so we're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. Uh, this was with Andrew. Andrew's question initially started off as, how do we determine whether we're going to use a Camperini deadlift or a split squat under certain circumstances when we're trying to recapture relative motions? And we quickly deviated off into a path of, of basically how to cue uh, complex exercises. And so the, the key element here is to always put them in a position to be successful, number one, and number two, always teach them the most complex element of the exercise first. And so a lot of times this tends to be where the turnaround is. So when we talk about a turnaround, the bottom of a Camperini deadlift is the most complex position to try to access. The bottom of a split squat is the most difficult uh, element to access. The bottom of a squat is the most difficult element to access. And so if we can teach that element first, we tend to be much more successful uh, in our coaching. So Andrew, thank you for leading us in this direction with this question. I think it's gonna help a lot of people um, with their coaching cues. If you'd like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it and put your question in the email if you would. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Friday. Uh, podcast will be up on Sunday and I will see you next week. What is the thought process um, between picking 
one or the other staggered stance activities, more of like a, of a hinge based one that's, um, is more of a middle P representation or, uh, or a split squat where you have a lot of room to work with, like, uh, with, with, you could even go halfway and it's like almost more ER representation. What, what moves the most in a, in a campo deadlift? The sacrum relative to the anominates. Well, let's just say pelvic pelvis is moving. Okay. Pelvis and hip. Okay. Okay. Not a lot of knee movement, right? Not a lot. Okay. So if I had a proximal issue that I was working on, which one makes it easier for me to constrain all the other representations with at the ankle and at the knee? The campo. Yeah. So, so think about like, so for me to access relative motions in a split squat, I have to have a, a much greater measure of control of multiple joints at the same time. Right. And so what you may find is, it's like, okay, I got to work on this, this, this hip representation as, as my primary intention. Right. And it doesn't mean you can't do a split squat. It just means that, okay, if, if I, if I'm focused on, like axial position, pelvis orientation, and the hip, then it would stand to reason that if I can eliminate other elements that um, don't have to move as much, right? So my knee doesn't move as much, my ankle doesn't move as much when I'm doing a campo dead. Mm -hmm. right. right. Because again, the complexity of a split squat is greater than a campo. Right. Right. One of your, one of your feet isn't fully on the ground. Well, my, my point is, is like, I have to, I have to control axial orientation, pelvic orientation, hip representation, knee, and then the foot and the ankle. Right. right? Now, all of that stuff is still moving in a campo. It just moves a lot less at the knee and, in, and at the foot. Right. So it's going to be a little bit easier for me to influence the proximal orientation because I don't have to worry so much about knee position. I don't have to worry so much about foot position that's moving as I am moving. Mm, okay. I see. It. So, so when you're, when you're trying to teach somebody a position, um, is it, is it best to do it at high speed um, with a, a full range of motion at all? You, you see, what I'm getting at it's It's like, it's like, okay, how do I need, how do I need to, to set this up to um, get the greatest, return on investment. So if I need to constrain a, a, an element of position, it's like, I'll teach people static activities. Like I'll literally say, I want you to stay in this position. I want you to hold this position so you can sense what I want you to do. Right. right? You remember how we were talking about um, setting people up at the end of the exercise. So they knew where they were supposed to go. Yeah. Definitely been helpful. Yeah. So, so same principle here is like, okay, so if I was going to try to teach somebody um, where to go, like, like if you're teaching a campo deadlift, do you want to teach them the beginning of the exercise first, or you want to teach them the end of the exercise first? I suppose the end. Yeah, because it, that's where, that's the sort of like the most important part is to make sure you're landing in the right position, because the standing up part is a little bit easier to get to, because let's just face it, you're upright, it's easier to get to. Right? Did you do that with the chopping variation? Like, or it's a really good Okay. Okay. Yeah. So when you were, when you were messing around on video with your chop activity that when last time we talked, right. And we said, I said, go to the end position of the chop, right. Mm -hmm. 
you could literally make that the activity. You could just say, hold this position. Right. Right. Same, same principle. It's like, okay, if they can control, if they can control foot position, knee position, hip position, I'm okay with just driving split squat all day long, every day. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Got it. And I guess just a mini follow-up on the Camp Barini. Um, so when, when we were uh, in the gym hall, I, for the first time, got this idea of actually how to execute that, um, where yeah. if I'm not mistaken, it's like the legs just keep getting heavier as you go down. Um, and, and there's almost like this, there, there's this, uh, heavy component of, of hamstring working. Like I just, I hadn't felt it this, the way that I did, um, in Indiana before. And I think it's cause I was moving out of the way of the weights. I was literally like doing a toe touch and just getting out of the way. Um, and so I think I'm having trouble coaching it optimally for, for clients. Like I say, things like, you know, uh, you're, you're thinking about basically just pulling yourself towards those foot contacts, right? So they're getting heavier and heavier. Um, but I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on like coaching cues for that exercise. Okay. So again, um, part of the confusion may, may be the fact that they're moving from top down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So set up the stance, put a low box in front of the foot that you're going to aim for and then set a kettlebell down on the box. Mm, I like that. Okay, so you're teaching it from the bottom up. Again, it's like, it's like the, when, when you have exercises like this, that you know, are, are asymmetrical, put them in the end position first, make it easy for them to access it. So, so move them into the end position and they're picking the weight up, you, you get it? It's like the weight is already down there and you say, here's the stance I want you to use. Now I want you to go down, grab the handle. Don't lift the weight, grab the handle, capture the end position and pick the weight up. And then the, the, the next best cue, put it back down the same way you picked it up. <laughs> right, right. Right. How do you teach a kettlebell clean? You teach a kettlebell clean from the top down. You say, here's the end position. Drop this weight down between your legs and they go, Whomp, and you go now just reverse gears Whomp, and you just taught somebody a kettlebell clean in 20 seconds right. instead, of, instead of taking half an hour to give them all the nuances. You just, like I said, start them at the end and then you see what I'm getting at. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's such a, end. yeah, it's, it's such a simple thought process and that's why I'm kind of laughing to myself. Um, just not, not thinking about why would I start the exercise at the beginning, but simply just doing it because that's, that's yeah. the way I've always done it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like when you're, when you're teaching somebody to squat for the first time, how do you do it? Uh, usually to a box. Okay. So take this same process and let, now let's reverse engineer. Sit down on the box for me. They sit down on the box. Stand up. Mm -hmm. Get it? So you put them at the, what, what you think is the end. So a squat is actually a bottom-up activity. It's not a top-down activity. It's always, it's always a bottom-up activity. That's, and again, all you have to do is look at the, look at the orientation of the pelvis. And you can see, oh, this is a, a stand-up. It's not a sit-down. But you have to get down there to stand back up because we're walking around on two feet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's actually, that's really smart for the squat too, because I feel like um, so many of the 
compensations that people will exhibit are an inability to make the legs sort of the onus of the activity, right? Like, so you get an ER orientation because the legs aren't underneath you. You get an IR orientation, right? Yeah. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. So that that was so just just sit down to the box and then come back up. What if somebody is is doing this like with their whole thorax and head? You just well, like say like then then maybe maybe you you put them on too low a box. Oh, okay. Any other <laughs> possibilities, or is it just my coaching? Well, so their center of gravity is behind. It, it, their center yeah. of gravity drops and it falls backwards, right? Okay, so they have to bring their center of gravity forward to come up over their their base of support, right? So again, just start with a higher box, and you reduce right. you reduce the compensation, and then you just say, okay, so you take your box and you put you you got Eric's pads and stuff. You put a couple yep. of Eric's pads on yep. there. You say, sit down on those pads for a second. Okay, stand up, and then you hit, and then you make the judgment. You're the coach. You go, oh, okay, still too low. Let's put another pad on there. Sit down on that. Perfect. We're gonna start there. Okay, right. and that becomes that becomes, and then you just slowly take away the pads as they start to gain capacity to, to um, change shape and then produce pressure, right? And then you just make it harder. Right. So it's like, it's, it's just like we were talking about before. It's like, do you do things in the hardest, in the hardest manner to, to start? Is it highest velocity, fullest range of motion that the, you know, the hardest activity to, to control? It's like, no, you don't do that. You start with whatever range of motion they can control at whatever speed they can control, et cetera. So that's all you're doing. You're just creating a constraint within the activity to make sure that they are successful. Awesome. Extremely helpful.